Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The question arises, well, you know, could you be a Christian and reject the idea of a universal flood and and just, you know, believe that it was perhaps a local flood? I think you could be a Christian, you'd just be an awfully misinformed one. And one who is on a slippery slope, because once you start rejecting portions of God's Word, it becomes easier and easier to reject more and more of it. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Genesis chapters 7 through 9 in a message titled, The Flood. Now, here's Pastor Brian. If you consider the volumetric capacity of the ark. Now, the ark was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet in width, and it was 45 feet high. This would give a capacity of about 1,400,000 cubic feet. This is the equivalent of 522 railroad boxcars. How many of you have ever been stuck at a railroad crossing? Man, you know, you get stuck there with, you know, 50 cars or something like that, and it just seems like an eternity for that train to pass. Can you imagine 522 railroad boxcars? 522 cars could hold 125,000 sheep. Now, here's an interesting Fact, only 11% of land animals are larger than sheep. So 89% of the animals are the size of sheep or smaller. So when you start looking at it like this, does it seem that great of an impossibility for the animals to fit in the ark? I don't think so. Since Noah took two of each kind... And, and, of course, he took seven of the, of the clean animals. And he didn't need all the varieties within the kind. The total amount of animals on the ark could have been as low as 16,000, and it wouldn't need to be more than 40,000. So when you look at it from that perspective, again, it takes away what seems to be insurmountable obstacles to the animals fitting on the ark. Some would say in opposition to the idea that Noah would not have been able to gather all the animals to the ark because many of them would have been in different parts of the world. That's another idea that's put forth in opposition to the story. But what people don't realize is that before the flood, the dry land was all one mass. So today, of course, we have the continents, and the continents are separated by large bodies of water, by oceans. But that wasn't the case, more than likely, prior to the flood. All of the dry land was one large land mass, and the period of time for the completion of the ark was over 100 years. Remember back in the sixth chapter, God said to Noah, 
regarding man. He said his days will be 120 years. And, and people have often wondered, well, just exactly what was God saying there? Was he talking about the, the age of man being uh, reduced from, you know, these long, long years, eight, 900 years down to 120? That's a possibility, but more likely what God was doing was pronouncing the time left before the judgment came. So from the time that God commissioned Noah to build the ark, there would be 120 years until the judgment came. So if you consider that the dry land was one large mass and there was over a 100-year period for the animals to be able to migrate there, again, that takes away that obstacle. Many animals, you know, again, of course, well, how could, how could Noah round up all of these animals? Well, you know, many animals have a migration instinct. And there's no reason that God couldn't have moved the animals in that very way. You know, there are animals that, that migrate great distances. Birds, of course, fly thousands and thousands of miles to a specific destination by instinct. It's programmed into them by God. So, so again, you see these, these insurmountable obstacles. I, I think, you know, if you just look at it rationally and reasonably, they're fairly easily cleared up. Some have objected, saying Noah couldn't have cared for that many animals for more than a year on the ark. Well, again, we know that many animals go into what we call hibernation. And I think it's highly probable that most of the animals on the ark were put into a state of hibernation during that period of time. So all of this to say... When the critics come and ridicule, mock, make fun of the idea that there could have been an ark with animals in it and and a man named Noah and his family, we don't have to backpedal. We don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to apologize for, you know, well, the Bible, you know, maybe occasionally it does have a myth or two in it. No, we can stand on firm ground and we can point to historical evidence. We can point to geological evidence. We can clear up these seeming obstacles fairly easily. And once again, I believe, show the veracity of the scripture. But there aren't only critics. And generally, of course, critics will be those who are outside of the church. Those who are attacking the church from the outside But we also have, in our midst, we have skeptics. People who are in the church. People who sometimes occupy pulpits. People who uh, sometimes occupy positions as educators within theological schools, seminaries, and things like that. And they are skeptical. They don't come out and, you know, flat-out deny what the scriptures say, but they want to modify things. Many evangelicals try to limit the flood to being a local rather than a universal flood. Let me give you an example from two different writers. One commentator who I actually enjoy, apart from his view here, he said, the events described here took place within a limited, though indeed a vast area. 
covering not the entire globe, but the scene of the human story in Mesopotamia or some larger tract. Another well-known evangelical theologian said, the flood was local to the Mesopotamian valley. Man was destroyed within the boundaries of that flood. The record is mute about man in America, Africa, or China. So this is the kind of thing that's coming from within. This is the kind of thing when a you know, unfortunately, when a young man goes off to seminary to get his education because he wants to be better equipped to teach God's people, unfortunately, they get subjected to this kind of stuff. And sadly, many have, you know, gone in with a tremendous amount of zeal and, and desirous to come out and, you know, make a great difference in the world for the Lord. But they go through the process of, you know, being educated in this kind of stuff and they come out having lost most of their faith, if not all of it in some cases. It's a sad and tragic thing. But how do we respond to these theologians who make these kinds of claims? Well, you know, so often you find that, you know, men who are otherwise brilliant, sometimes it seems like they, they just didn't pay attention to the text itself right before them because they make statements that, that contradict what's plainly declared in the text. If you just read through the text as we did, or if you want to read through it verse by verse, the wording of the text certainly leads one to believe that the flood was universal. I think that is indisputable. And as a matter of fact, those who deny that the flood was universal, they will say, well, you know, it does sound like it's describing a universal flood, but but we know it wasn't. Well, how do we know it wasn't? Even it, It sounds like it. That's what it's describing. But how do we know it wasn't? Oh, well, because, you know, the geologists have told us there was no worldwide flood. So the geologists become the authority rather than the Bible. I think you can see the problem with that. Here's another way to respond. The construction of the ark would be an utter waste of time and resources if the flood were but a local flood. Migration to another location would have been a much better solution to the problem for Noah as well as the birds and the beast. You know, if you think about it, if this was merely a local flood and it's not going to take place for 120 years, what would have God said to Noah? He would have said, Noah, get out of this place. Pack up your family and head out because I'm going to destroy this valley with a flood. That would have been the much easier and more logical instruction had it been merely a local flood. All flesh died that moved upon the earth. That's what we're told in the text. All flesh died that moved upon the earth. In a local flood, most of the fauna can escape death by fleeing the rising waters or by swimming to dry ground if necessary or by flying away as in the case of birds, but this would be impossible in a universal flood. Fourthly, God's promise never to send such a flood again has been broken repeatedly if it were only a local and a regional flood. Because, of course, we've had many floods, and we can think of some fairly recently. Fifthly, the New Testament uses the unique term cataclysmos, or as we would say it, cataclysm, instead of the usual Greek word for flood. 
So both the Hebrew language and the Greek language use special words to describe this event and words that speak of a, a, of a catastrophic thing, not the, the typical words that are used for flood. The Hebrew word is mabul, and this is kataklusmas. Now, sixthly, later biblical writers accepted the flood as being universal. In his second epistle, Peter speaks of the world that then was, the world that existed before the flood, he said it perished in the flood. And then finally, and ultimately, Jesus accepted the historicity and universality of the flood, even making it the climactic sign and type of the coming worldwide judgment when he returns. So, I mean, to me, that almost does away with the necessity for any other argument. If Jesus Christ is indeed who the Bible claims that he is and who we believe him to be, that he is the son of God, that he is God, the second person of the Trinity, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent. If Jesus believed that the flood was universal, I think we would be wise to believe the flood is universal as well and not follow the leading of these men who they have the degree perhaps as a, as a theologian or whatever, but they're not holding fast to the scriptural account. Now, this kind of stuff, as I was saying, a lot of times in the past has been more or less kept in the seminaries. It, it trickles down as the, the seminarians graduate and go out and begin to, you know, pastor churches and so forth. But amazingly, we are seeing presently within the, the evangelical body. Now, just to clarify what that means, you know, the evangelical church, you've, of course, heard that term before. Some of you know exactly what it means. But the evangelical church is a way of referring or has been historically a way of referring to the people who believe the Bible to be God's word. The people who take serious the scriptures as the inspired and errant word of God, the people who are believing that Jesus came, died, rose again, he's ascended into heaven, he's going to return, that is what historically an evangelical has been. But what's happening today within the evangelical movement is more and more this liberal kind of thinking is being embraced, and it's not just being communicated at the, at the level of the seminaries, it's really starting to be disseminated on the popular level today. And there are a lot of guys out today who are writing popular books and speaking in numbers of places all around the world and gaining a lot of popularity within the church who would hold to these kinds of views. They would deny that the flood was universal. They would probably deny that it was even a reality at all in regard to God judging the world because of sin because they really don't like that idea or that message. So because that's the case, sooner or later, we're going to come across people, people in church, 
people who are professing to be believers who are going to have doubts about these kinds of things. Now, the question arises, well, you know, could you be a Christian and reject the idea of a universal flood and and just, you know, believe that it was perhaps a local flood? I think you could be a Christian. You'd just be an awfully misinformed one, a seriously confused one, and one who is on a slippery slope because once you start rejecting portions of God's word, it becomes easier and easier to reject more and more of it as certain teachings become less and less popular in the culture. So it's a very real danger, and it's something that we need to guard ourselves against. And of course, the best way to do it is to just take the word at face value Believe what it says. Do your research. Do your homework. There's, there's plenty of excellent material available to us as believers to give the background and the support that we need. But, you know, in these days of, of intense skepticism, we have to be, I think we have to really be students of the word in these days. We're not going to survive these days if we have just a, casual, sort of a non-committal approach to Bible study. We're going to have to really get in and dig in and really know what God's Word says. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it so we can give a defense when the opportunity arises. Now, we were told as we read through those portions of Scripture that the ark, when it did finally rest, It rested on the mountains of Ararat. Now, Mount Ararat is in the area of Armenia. And even in the past several decades, there have been numbers of expeditions, men that have sought to find this ark. Stories of the ark still located in that region have been reported from ancient times right down to today. Now, whether or not the ark will ever be discovered, whether it is still there intact, we don't know for sure. I think that the possibility is pretty high that it is still there. And I think it would be a great idea for God to let it be discovered. Now, I don't know what he thinks, (laughs) but if I were God, I I would let it be found. But wouldn't that be an absolute mind blower to find this giant, well, it wasn't really a ship. It was more just a, a giant box, really. But to find this thing at about 450 feet in length and 75 feet wide, and maybe it is, as some have uh, suspected, and, and uh, there have been some aerial photographs taken that it might be encased in ice still in that very place, in that very region. I mean, that would be just fascinating 
for that kind of a discovery to be made. I don't know if it ever will, but again, I think it would be a great idea. But as we come through the story, picking up in verse 20 of the eighth chapter, as Noah and his family have come out of the ark together, we read that Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. You know, we'd have to use our imagination. I don't even know. I mean, some have a better imagination than others. I, I just can't imagine what it would have been like. Now, we talked before about the numbers of people that were on the earth at the time. And conservative, very, very extremely conservative estimates put it in the millions. Less conservative, but still conservative estimates put it in the billions. But it it seems unimaginable. To, to think of just one man and his family, his wife, his three sons and their wives, that they alone, along with the animals, that they are put in this, this ark. They are sealed in this ark by God, and they are preserved through this greatest of all uh, catastrophic, catastrophic events. It's just, you know, it's an inconceivable thing. But you can imagine, I think, to some degree how Noah would have just been so thankful and so deeply and profoundly moved and and sobered so seriously as he finally came out of that judgment, came through that judgment. A year and a month it took for the whole thing to transpire. And the first thing that Noah does when he comes forth from the ark is he offers offerings on an altar to the Lord. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, this is interesting to me, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. You know, you would think it would be almost the opposite. Because man's imagination is only evil from his youth, you would think that God would say, I'm I'm going to judge him again. I'm going to destroy him again. But in this statement, you, you get a sense of God's compassion even for, for man in his sin and in his wickedness. You, you, there's a sense of, There's a sense of mercy in what God's describing here. Even though the imagination of man's heart is evil, continually evil from his youth, in a sense, God is saying, I'm going to have mercy. I'm I'm going to withhold judgment. And then he says, while the earth remains, indicating that the earth will not always remain, but while it remains, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. For the month of October, 
Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Progress, Kindness, and Equality by Glenn Scrivener. Western culture is characterized by particular values, whether it's the value of equality, when it comes to social injustice, race, or gender, or whether it's the value of freedom regarding local laws or presidential elections. Many of our most cherished values find their historical roots in the Jesus Revolution, also known as Christianity. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Glenn Scrivener traces the history of seven different values that are commonly held in Western culture that their origins have gone unnoticed, but find their beginnings in Christianity itself. He will take you through history, from the beginnings in Genesis up to George Floyd to present his case. This book will open your eyes how Christianity shaped our values of both Christians and non-Christians alike. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality by Glenn Scrivener. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.